Welcome to Hub Headlines. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Today's program features the best commentary and analysis published in The Hub on February 14th. Up first is Joanna Barron writing on the legal battles between the provincial and federal governments. Last week, the Supreme Court of Canada released a major decision, AG Canada versus AG Quebec, which found that the federal government's exclusive jurisdiction over Indians and lands reserved for the Indians allows it to set national standards for Indigenous child welfare services that are binding on the provinces, even though the provinces have jurisdiction over child and family services through their constitutionally guaranteed powers over property and civil rights in the province, and generally all matters of a merely local or private nature in the province. The decision was a pragmatic compromise that stopped short of directly answering broader questions of whether and when the federal government can direct the provinces to implement federal laws. But the issue is bound to return to the court in the coming years, particularly with initiatives in Alberta and Saskatchewan to carve out greater autonomy from the federal government. Bill C-92, an act respecting First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children, youth, and families, was a response to the commitments Canada bound itself to when it adopted the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which broadly calls for autonomy and self-determination for Indigenous peoples and calls for reconciliation between the Crown and First Nations, the Inuit and Métis. It provides a framework for Indigenous peoples to oversee their child welfare programs and explicitly declares itself to carry precedence over provincial laws. Quebec referred the question of the Act's constitutionality to the courts because despite supporting greater autonomy for Indigenous peoples, it took issue with the federal government's decision to direct the provinces about how to deliver child protection services where Indigenous children are involved and its declaration that Indigenous laws, even those not yet enacted, could be given the force of federal laws and made paramount over provincial laws. That would seem to represent a deviation from the division of powers between provincial and federal spheres of authority guaranteed in the Constitution, as well as from the general principles of mutual agreement and cooperation between two sovereign and co-equal levels of government. The Canadian Constitution Foundation intervened to help preserve the principle that provinces cannot be compelled to administer federal laws or programs, which could be the next big frontier in the federalism wars. The court appears to have preserved that principle, at least for now. The decision was deliberated upon for a lengthy 14 months and was authored by the court rather than individual judges, both signals of extensive interchambers negotiations and a drive to arrive at consensus. The decision found that the federal law directing the provinces in this particular case was constitutional because the purpose of the law was squarely within federal jurisdiction and the impacts on the provincial public service were incidental or relatively minor. We can expect the federal government to continue attempting to coerce the provinces into implementing federal laws under their power of legislating national standards. This issue is bubbling up in provincial legislatures across the country and will surely land in the courts again soon. When it comes to questions of how far the federal government can go in directing provinces to implement its laws, the elephant in the room is the Alberta Sovereignty Within a United Canada Act, the act tabled by Alberta Premier Danielle Smith when she formed government in 2022, 
features a declaration that Alberta would decline to implement federal laws or programs that, in its view, unjustifiably impeded provincial jurisdiction or prejudiced the interests of Alberta. Smith gave teeth to this declaration last November when she announced that Alberta would elect not to implement the federal government's clean electricity regulations, still in draft form, and instead would pursue its own clean energy initiatives. Smith would seem to be on strong footing to do so, since S-92C guarantees to the provinces control over the development, conservation, and management of sites and facilities in the province for the generation and production of electrical energy. This act's constitutionality has been the subject of controversy within the legal community. It has been pointed out in support of the Act's constitutionality that the Supreme Court, while permitting inter-administrative delegation, has consistently emphasized that this delegation occurs on the basis of mutual consent and cooperation with the provinces. Alberta would decline to implement federal laws without disputing their constitutionality, but instead require the federal government to implement its law on its own, with its own funds, instead of relying on the provinces to carry out its policies as it normally does. This view of provincial autonomy within the Federation isn't just gaining traction in Alberta. Saskatchewan has acted similarly in its regulation of firearms, pushing back against the federal regulation of guns by requiring any federal agent that proposes to confiscate a gun in the province to be licensed by the Chief Firearms Officer of Saskatchewan to provide fair compensation for seized weapons and give the province-wide scope in prosecuting nonviolent firearms offenses. The Supreme Court's ruling last week preserved the principle that provinces can't be required to implement federal laws, but that won't prevent a future government lawyer from trying to argue that the decision gives cover for Ottawa to attempt to ram through future laws and dispute the constitutionality of the Sovereignty Act or Saskatchewan's firearms legislation. The courts ought to reject this. A robust federal structure allows for the provinces to act as laboratories of innovation and pursue different policy priorities in response to the vastly different economic and social conditions throughout the country. That was a commentary by Joanna Barron. She's the executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. You can find the full text of her article on our website, thehub.ca. Our second essay today is by Bill Fox, who has worked in press, politics, and public policy. He is writing today on why we will always need journalism. In November's economic and fiscal update, Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland threw Canada's legacy print media companies a lifeline. Responding to industry representations, Freeland's statement included $129 million for eligible news organizations by significantly increasing the Canadian Journalism Labour Tax Credit, allowing publishers to claim up to $29,150 for each journalist in their employ. The initial tax credit was introduced in 2019 to help stem the depopulation of the nation's newsrooms. The policy immediately drew sharp criticism from the official opposition, from the public, and from working journalists themselves. The Conservative Party has continued to oppose these measures, including November's announcement that they'd be expanded, on the grounds that they represent a blatant attempt by the Trudeau government to buy good press. 
Any wonder why the press gallery has been in full attack mode against Pierre since Trudeau's fall update, asked a senior advisor to conservative leader Pierre Polyev. He's giving out another $30,000 per journalist in tax-funded media bailouts. Expect them to do whatever the PMO says. This line of attack on the moral and intellectual integrity of the news was echoed in social media posts to the intense irritation and frustration of many working journalists, including those who cover politics for a living. Globe and Mail columnist Andrew Coyne, a model of consistency on the issue, who has been as sharply critical of the industry as he has been of the government, posted his thanks to the Prime Minister and the publishers for putting us all in this invidious position. Under the provisions of the Online News Act, Ottawa has also reached an agreement with Google that will pay $100 million a year indexed to inflation to eligible Canadian news organizations including broadcasters, local newspapers, and Indigenous and Francophone news groups. The distribution of these funds is still unclear. The business side of the news business has welcomed both pieces of news. On the labor tax credit, Paul Deegan, president and chief executive officer of News Media Canada, said, Local news is vital, and this targeted investment is both timely and necessary. Deegan's organization speaks for some 575 titles across Canada, including The Globe and Mail, La Presse, and Post Media. One might wonder why a paper like The Globe, owned by one of the world's richest men, needs or would want government support. Funding for Post Media is seen as a handout to the U.S.-based hedge fund managers who control the company. Deegan properly draws attention to the smaller titles, the local and community newspapers, that provide the iron core of information that is foundational to a citizen's understanding of the community, the country, and the world. Deegan's defense is predicated on a core belief that the news is integral in any liberal democracy, that the media is a primary site of political discourse, that media provides much of the vernacular for public debate, that media matters, that as journalism goes, so goes democracy. Which raises two fundamental questions. How goes journalism today? And is news currently defined as foundational to political discourse and public engagement as conventional wisdom holds? Wilbur Schramm, a scholar and authority on mass media, described news as an attempt to reconstruct the essential framework of an event. News is also an account of what is different today from yesterday. News is about the exception. News isn't about what works. News is about what doesn't. For that reason, Harvard professor Thomas Patterson says news is essentially anti-government. Not because of a philosophical or partisan bias as political operatives tend to believe, but because of the very definition of news. The Canada Emergency Response Benefit is a case in point. CERB was designed to provide financial support to employed and self-employed Canadians directly impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Literally, millions of Canadians applied. The application process was relatively easy and largely accessible. There were structural shortcomings to be sure around income thresholds, gender and diversity biases, and the way the program dealt with, or more precisely failed to deal with, 
migrant and undocumented workers. Yet the news coverage tended to feature the anecdotal in the individual who didn't get their check or the small business owner who couldn't meet rent at the end of the month, even though the end of the month came literally days after the pandemic was declared. The proverbial forest, the millions of Canadians who received funding within days of applying for relief, was largely overlooked. The playbook was obvious. Use an episode to support an assertion about a larger truth. COVID-19 triggered layoffs, for example. Find the person who didn't get their CERB check immediately. Use it to make the case the program is flawed and then position the political leader as either the person who is responsible for the flaw or the political leader who can fix the problem. And years later, when the economic and social threat posed by the pandemic is diminished, use the benefit of hindsight to argue the government overspent on CERB altogether. The storyline can find a fresh news hook each day by finding another example. The cumulative effect of this type of reportage has an impact, especially if the newsmaker settles on a consonance of language. These congenial truths, to borrow a phrase from Nathan Heller, spread with the authority of gossip or folklore. And they are foundational for the system-is-broken narrative that has emerged in political discourse in Western liberal democracies. Failures of public policy or political institutions warrant extensive news coverage. But news stories should be the start of the political conversation, not the last word. The renowned Walter Lippmann argued news and truth are not the same thing, and that the work of reporters is less about bringing light and more akin to a flashlight in a dark room. This reality is reinforced by the fact news is about accuracy, not veracity. Former U.S. President Donald Trump exploited the difference between accuracy and veracity in political coverage. Trump knew journalists would accurately report anything he said, whether the utterances bore any resemblance to the truth or not. The resulting news stories were more stenographic than journalistic. In a bid to distance themselves from the partisan press of the past, legacy media mistakenly left the task of establishing the truth to others. While the failures of journalism in our current age are obvious, if it is to survive and reassert its place in public discourse, then the media will have to move from the news business to the truth business. Reporters, as columnist Dan Gilmore put it, don't have to let liars use them as loudspeakers. Going forward, media needs a new business model, new journalistic practices, a new product to sell, and new incentives to attract an audience. Canadian communications scholar Harold Innes first suggested that Western civilization has been profoundly influenced by communications. Innes observed that, with each new communications technology, a new empire emerges that harnesses the innovative power that new media affords. This new empire has emerged in Canada and throughout the Western world without the benefit of an exhaustive public policy discussion on the role of journalism in general and social media platforms in particular in our politics, New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman says we should have had the discussion back in 2007 as now dominant social media platforms were emerging. But we were collectively preoccupied with the global economic crisis, and just as we worked our way through that, we had to deal with the pandemic. News, as we know it, 
is as much a product of the industrial age as a tin can. An emerging technology of the 19th century, the telegraph, was central to its development. To this day, news stories for print publications tend to be written in what is known as the inverse pyramid style. Telegraph lines had a way of going down. Those crafting the dispatch couldn't be certain how much of the text would actually get through. The lead approach was developed, and the essence of the story is set out in the opening paragraph. This technology gave rise to what communications scholar James Carey described as a transmission model, the conveyance of information over distance for purposes of control. This top-down, one-to-many model was effective with newer technologies such as radio, and it was perfect for television, which surpassed newspapers as the information medium of choice in the early 1960s. Television allowed political leaders to connect directly with low-involvement voters. A parasocial relationship ensued, whereby listeners and viewers felt a personal connection to the political leader. Television news, to cite the scholars, was news that mattered. News helped shape the political agenda, determining what problems a leader had to take up and what issues he or she could safely ignore. A limited number of gatekeepers shaped the news. The television screen was central to this process, because television tended to be leader-centric, there was a corresponding shift in the balance of political coverage. In Canada, prime ministers and their offices took up much of the media oxygen. Then the screen changed to small screens on laptops, iPads, and mobile phones. Innes's new empire had an immediate and direct impact on the journalistic tradition that reflected Robert Heinlein's first witness. Political leaders can now connect directly with low-involvement voters through social media and have the option of bypassing the legacy media entirely. One example, the leader's tour, once central to an election campaign's earned media strategy, is now an anachronism. The media's gatekeeper function is now widely shared. VO Key's echo chambers have multiplied exponentially. Misinformation and disinformation campaigns are a direct consequence. A 2018 study concluded fake news diffuse significantly further, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth. Harold Laswell's genius in asserting political communication can be reduced to five questions. Who says what, to whom, through which channel, to what effect, holds. But the answers to those five questions are dramatically, even radically different. Much of the current conversation about legacy media begins with the assertion advertising. The midwife of a free press has moved to the platforms. The eyeballs have followed and they aren't going to come back for the news product currently on offer. They may come back for journalism, specifically a journalism that embraces James Carey's philosophy of inquiry. Reportage that provides context, that gives meaning. Truth is cumulative. Truth is a process. The first word may or may not be the last word. The news stated the Israeli Defense Forces bombed a hospital in Gaza until it was proven they didn't, and a fatal fiery explosion on the Rainbow Bridge in Niagara Falls was erroneously described in at least one news report as a terrorist act. 
Andrew McDougall, former director of communications for then-Prime Minister Stephen Harper, took to X in a wistful post. Imagine a world where people would take the time to check information, for truth and accuracy, before they distributed it. McDougall's conclusion, this is why we need journalism, folks. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's English services could lead the pivot to a different kind of journalistic offering. The CBC has more reach and journalistic resources at its disposal than any other news organization in the country. As a public broadcaster, a focus on people and their problems, rather than on politicians and theirs, is consistent with its mandate. And to be blunt, CBC News and Current Affairs don't really have anything to lose. CBC Radio has enjoyed significant success because its programming reflects the diversity of Canada's conversation in the arts, science, business, books, and, yes, politics. Polyev has promised to defund the CBC if his conservatives win the next federal election. Polyev and his political advisors have clearly decided there is more opportunity than risk in the campaign promise. The fact alarmingly fewer people now watch The National, the CBC's flagship news vehicle, is undoubtedly a factor in Polyev's thinking. Patterson describes journalists as society's chief sense-makers and journalism as a sorting-out process. Academic research confirms social media platforms such as Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok are the go-to sources for news. And social media posts most certainly help shape public opinion. The impact of TikTok on attitudes about the current war in the Middle East is one example. But research also suggests news consumers look to establish media platforms when they want the truth. NYU professor Jay Rosen offers an excellent example of one area where political coverage could and should pivot. Reporting on polls. Horse race coverage has long been an element of political journalism and coverage of public opinion. Polls conducted by reputable opinion research polls is a staple. When the horse race was a once-a-month story around the release of a Gallup poll, the impact on public opinion was limited. But with the proliferation of political polls, the horse race story is now a weekly, if not more frequent, event with a consequential impact on public opinion itself. And the expression of public opinion has a direct impact on political journalism. The media do not just shape what the public is interested in, but also are shaped by it states author Daniel Kahneman. Editors cannot ignore the public demand that certain topics and viewpoints receive extensive coverage. Rosen's suggestion to political reporters? Focus on the stakes and not the odds in the elections. Studies have established Canadians aren't all that inclined to pay for news. Middle of the pack in a recent survey of 20 countries which Carleton professor Dwayne Winsek says suggests a paid news model is not viable on its own. An incentive may be required. The easiest to implement would be a dramatic increase in the digital news subscription tax credit. Now available up to $75 in tax relief, the tax credit's incentive potential is minimal. Raising the credit to levels equal to the treatment of political contributions might provide more stimulus, in Ontario, for example, that would mean raising the value of the credit to as much as $650 at the federal level. And in Ontario, 
around $1,550 at the provincial level. The subscription tax credit model has several advantages, the most important being the fact it would boost startups as much as legacy news organizations. The fact the solution is market-based, with no role for government with a benefit that accrues to the subscriber taxpayer rather than the news organizations directly enhances the appeal. Innes noted, it is exceedingly difficult for successive generations to understand new institutions. No disrespect intended, but aging boomers running legacy news organizations aren't likely to figure out the alchemy of a new offering, a different business model, a different professional skill set, and the ever-escalating methods of distribution. If they had an answer, they wouldn't be beating a path to Ottawa looking for lifelines that look more like life support systems. Freelance lifeline to the legacy media can, perhaps, buy the nation's print publication sometime. But it is not an answer. In fact, Freeland would be well advised to use the spring budget to introduce a sunset clause for the journalism labor tax credit. So in an immediate sense, Incentives that encourage multiple subscriptions such as The Logic, The Line, The Hub, or Substack columns by writers such as Paul Wells will be more effective over the longer term. A proliferation of startups could also help address some of the imbalances in Canadian journalism. A recent survey of 6,000 journalists conducted by the Canadian Association of Journalists concluded people of color continue to be vastly underrepresented in newsrooms. There is a need for journalism in the longer term. A century ago, when communications technologies were just emerging, Walter Lippmann warned there can be no liberty for a community that lacks the information by which to detect lies. Former Columbia Journalism Review editor Joan Connor said, The legitimacy of our democracy depends on having everyone participate in our deliberations. The challenge to journalism is how they can help us to construct a democratic conversation. The how, according to James Carey, is to set aside the transmission model of communication that has been central to public discourse and embrace a ritual model that encourages engagement and conversation. A world, Carey said, where there are no final thoughts, no last word. That was Bill Fox appearing in today's Hub and the Future of News series, which is supported by the Hub's Foundation donors and Meta. He has worked in press, politics, and in public policy. Well, that is it for today's edition of Hub Headlines. We hope you enjoyed the program. To receive our Monday to Friday newsletter, subscribe to the Hub for as little as 25 cents a day. You can do that right now at thehub.ca. This podcast was produced by Alicia Rao. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Gluskin-Granofsky Charitable Foundation and the From Charitable Foundation. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the host of Hub Headlines. Thanks for listening.